Plugged In podcast presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And joining me today to discuss HR1, the Lower Energy Costs Act, is IER's Director of Policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, welcome back to the show. Yep. Thanks. So a little over a week ago, the House of Representatives released its energy bill, HR1, uh, the Lower Energy Costs Act. Uh, The goal of the bill is to increase American energy production and exports and obviously to lower the cost of energy for American consumers. Uh, so my first question is, how does this bill do that? So it's this is actually a pretty it's a very broad bill. There's a lot of a lot of different components that hit a lot of different parts of um, the energy production and transportation uh, uh, elements uh, all throughout the supply chain. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that uh, arguably um, and that it would help lower energy costs. Some some very obvious and other ones are a little more, you know, bank shot type <laughs> arguments. But, uh, you know, for example, uh, there was in the, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't actually do anything to reduce inflation, um, there was uh, a tax on methane emissions that was uh, in the oil and gas system that was passed. Um, and so HR1 would repeal that tax. And so that's a direct way of lowering costs because obviously any tax on energy development um, is is going to be passed on the consumer. That's higher home heating costs. That's higher um, you know, electricity costs if you get your electricity from natural gas. So you know that's a direct impact. Um, some of the other ways that are a little more um, a little more indirect is there's um, so you know some permitting reforms, um, uh, some uh, some slight limitations on the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which is of course the main thing that is used to hold up development of, I mean development of everything. But since we're talking about energy, it's uh, especially pipelines and uh, electricity transmission projects. But you know that is used to hold up you know building roads, building factories, building everything. Um, so it's I mean that's honestly is is part of a larger uh, reform conversation, but there are specific elements that affect the energy system in this bill. There's also, um, you know, uh, some reforms to like cross-border permitting of pipelines and transmission with, this is the st- the problems that got, the Keystone pipeline got caught up in. Um, there's also some, there's some uh, parts that are targeted at um, uh, making mining a little more easier in the United States, the particularly for um, so-called critical minerals, which these are the type of things that, um, if for the folks that care about the energy uh, transitioning energy to electric vehicles or to renewables, um, the resources that are needed for that are things like critical minerals, also the broader products like lithium, that kind of thing. That right now it is extraordinarily hard to mine any of those products in the United States. Uh, it's partly the National Environmental Policy Act, but it's also just land use restrictions and uh, permitting difficulties in the federal government and all these these sorts of things. Um, so again, that's a that's a more several steps away from you know your electricity bill, but over the long term, that's another way of lowering energy cost um, uh, impacts and also you know promoting jobs and development in, in within the United States rather than you know in China or in Africa. So uh, again, it's it's a very broad piece of legislation. There's a, it's it's a bit of a grab bag. Uh, but in general, uh, most of the provisions, uh, at least directly or indirectly, are targeted at that goal of 
lowering the final energy cost to consumers. So actually, you know, a lot of times legislation has a made up name that is more of a PR pitch, but in this case, it's actually fairly accurate. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up NEPA. Uh, so Monday morning, you were on C-SPAN's Washington Journal, where you discussed and debated this bill with uh, someone from NRDC. Um, and one of the things that kept coming up in that discussion was NEPA and the role it plays in raising energy costs and blocking infrastructure development. Um, my next question was going to be to ask you to talk a little bit about NEPA. You covered it a little bit there. Um, you know, there, there seems to be some sort of consensus around the need for permitting reform. Um, I think one of the great points you made in your C-SPAN appearance was, you know, regardless of whether you're trying to build a, a pipeline for natural gas or build a renewable energy project, the permitting process is standing in the way of, you know, all of these projects. Uh, but one of the obstacles to reform seems to be the fact that um, you know, a lot of what I've been reading from left-wing think tanks and stuff, they acknowledge that there's a permitting problem, but then they say, well, we only want to fix it for certain uh, technologies or, you know, right. certain projects that they favor. Um, I was in a, at an event yesterday where uh, there were some House staffers that were there promoting the bill, and they said that their focus was really on, in, in HR1 was really on they they want a comprehensive reform. They don't want anything that is going to steer things towards uh, kind of engineering an outcome for one particular project or one sort of technology. Um, and I think, you know, from my perspective, that's obviously the right path. Uh, so my question is, you, you know, is that is it the case that HR kind of takes that approach when it comes to permitting reform? Um, and is it kind of avoiding the the engineering of uh, certain outcomes for certain projects and certain uh, uh, technologies. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I, I will say, you know, speaking of barriers to NEPA reform, actually the NRDC is one of the prime barriers to NEPA reform because as, as he said on Monday, he was very clear. We want no changes to NEPA whatsoever. Yeah. It's the foundation of environmentalists and environmentalism in America. Um, but then, of course, he went on to later on, he was lamenting how difficult it was to build long distance transmission. Right, um, and yeah. he, you know, he was the, one of their, he was saying the NRDC's proposal is that we should give FERC more power to override state objections to long distance transmission. Um, but of course, that's only a, a small sliver of the problem. You know, long distance transmission is subject to NEPA too. And there's a lot of land impacts when you're building a, you know, a giant towers over, you know, thousands of miles. And so he doesn't want to reform NEPA. So, but you give, it doesn't matter if you give FERC more power, FERC is subject to NEPA too. Right. So that does nothing to solve the underlying problem. So I thought, I thought that was funny that he was talking about the problems of long distance transmission, but then didn't want to, didn't want to even consider addressing one of the major barriers to building that transmission. Um, so yeah, I do think the 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 NEPA provisions that are in HR one are they're pretty targeted and limited. That's why I even said use the word limited. I think I said when I was talking about it. Um, it's obvious we obviously would prefer they go much further. Uh, there's pretty foundational reforms, but I think I think HR one is sort of acknowledging that as a political matter, it's a little hard to make some of those big big attempts at reform. But you know the limitations that the HR one puts on um, NEPA, it's they're they're not category specific. So you know, one of them is uh, basically setting a threshold for what projects uh, 
need uh, are subject to the full environmental impact statements um, under NEPA. And so, uh, and that that applies to everything. That's you know that applies to geothermal. That applies to you know if uh, one of the things is if you're trying to build a, a new transmission line in an existing right of way, the pay, the they they provide an exemption saying that that doesn't require a brand new NEPA analysis. You just use the NEPA analysis that already existed. You know, and it was so it was and so that that sort of limitation on when NEPA applies that broadly applies to everything. That's transmission. That's obviously pipelines. Uh, it's ge geothermal projects. It's it's anything you're trying to build. It was basically saying that uh, if these are if this is d a de minimis thing, you don't need to go through the whole song and dance of a several year long process of NEPA. You can you can move on. You can move forward and basically say this is not this is not a major action that requires uh, a NEPA review. So in that sense, it it, it truly is. Well, and, the, and then some of the other limitations they put in NEPA are um, you. Uh, you only you there's timelines time limits on when you can sue uh 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 to try and stop a project you also are required in order to sue to try and stop a project you're required to have participated um in the in the NEPA process early on in the and the discussion and review process you can't just parachute in at the end and try and sue to stop a project um so the, and those again those are things that apply to everything that's not that's not just oil and gas stuff that's every project has that problem and of course the i i i mentioned this on the show at the NRDC guy the NRDC is one of the big problems in right, that yeah. in that litigation they show up uh you know they fly in some people from Washington DC and try and sue to stop a project they don't like regardless of what people on the ground actually care about well, yeah, according to him, just just sometimes they do that. Not yeah, right. He said it's a very small part of their work. But here's the thing, you know, may, they may have a thousand employees and only a hundred of them are litigation people, but they make money on that litigation. The federal government pays them to sue the federal government. That's the way this litigation industry, uh, environmental litigation industry works. They get attorney's fees. They get money from the federal government um, to pay for their lawsuits. So it's it's a money-making operation for them. Yeah, so with your uh, with your C-SPAN appearance, my guess is that with that sort of format, with the back and forth and kind of questions coming at you from callers and stuff, it, it's probably tough to address every single point. Uh, there's probably a few things that you didn't get a chance to say. So is there anything that uh, wasn't covered in that discussion that you want to say about HR1 and uh, or any of the uh, points that uh, the representative from NRDC made that you kind of want to push back on? Yeah. So yeah, he had a cut. I mean, he had several, you know, talking points and bullet points that um, some of them were just like not really accurate. Like his numbers on uh, our domestic oil production and the uh, exports, the percentage of it that was exported were just completely wrong. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what he was referring to, but he said we produce about 12 million barrels a day and we export 9 million barrels a day. It's like, that's, you know, uh, maybe, maybe he meant like all final refined products maybe he was talking about but it was hard to tell what he was really talking about but there are there are a few statistics like that that i was sort of looking at i'm like uh, but I, I you know discussion moved on it was you don't get to say that um and then another thing another thing that i already i already kind of said it but um he uh, he kept saying over and over again that nrdc's big proposal for uh improving construction of long distance transmission is giving FERC more power I didn't get the opportunity to say what I just said a couple minutes ago. It's like, well, giving FERC more power doesn't doesn't do anything. Like you need to do something about the NEPA process that holds up because that's really what ultimately kills these long distance transmission lines is is NEPA. 
And also the other thing that kills long distance transmission or can is the 401 uh, water permitting process. The state, the state, which is under the Clean Water Act, um, states are allowed to weigh in um, for about water quality concerns about uh, projects. They and they can they can approve or disapprove of, of a project, or it's really meant to disapprove of the route of a project. You know, a, a power line or or a pipeline tends to be the to the two things. And you know, they can say, well, there's this stream that the that the power line or pipeline crosses, and we think that's a little sensitive. Like, build it somewhere else or take some other route. That's really what it's meant to do. But it's been weaponized um, by some states, uh, particularly New York and New England states, and it's basically been they've used it as a way to disapprove of projects they don't like. So it's not that they say a pipeline needs to take a different route that's you know doesn't provide there was much risk to water. They basically say you can't build the pipeline, um, period, because they don't want a pipeline built. And so it, one of the things HR one includes is going back to that original water quality concern, basically saying that. The state 401 process, if you want to disapprove uh, of, a, of a project using the 401 process, it needs to be for water quality reasons. You can't, it can't be extraneous reasons. It can't be, can't be climate change. It can't be political opposition to whatever the project is. It has to be actual water quality, quality concerns. And again, go, going back to the NRDC's proposal for FERC to have more control over transmission, if you don't fix the 401 process, um, States can use that to stop a high, a long distance transmission, regardless of FERC. Um, that's another thing I tried to, you know, I suggested to the NRDC representative. Was like, so you want, you probably want to do some reforms for the 401 and the process. And he's like, no, 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 we don't, we love that. You know, that's fine. Um, so it was sort of, he kept talking out of both sides of his mouth. And then another big one that, that sort of, it's, it's, and frankly, it's a talking point that the Biden administration uses too, is he said that, you know, uh, oil and gas, oil. Well, I guess it's just oil production has is has been up ten is up by ten percent under the Biden administration. Uh, sort of pretending like, oh well, all these complaints that the Biden administration is trying to suppress production. Oh, those are false because it's actually been growing. But of course, remember what happened in twenty twenty. The right. pandemic started and the whole world locked down and everybody stopped using oil. So yes, oil production has grown under the Biden administration, but that's because uh, our U.S. production dropped by something like 3 million barrels a day in 2020. So just, I think it's just later this year, I think EIA projects that our production, the domestic production is just going to reach the peak that it, it hit in the end of 2019. So we're only just now recovering to what we were doing before. So that's not some... Uh, example of the Biden administration doing a great job. It's that the industry is slowly recovering from this really catastrophic hit that they took. Um, and of course, all along the way, these last two years, the Biden administration has been doing everything possible to try and stop them from being able to recover their production. So, you know, if you had a pro-energy administration, it would have been very simple for them to turn, get production right back because again, we were already producing that much. Once demand recovered, we could have been producing much more if you didn't have uh, an administration that was trying to shut down production on federal lands, uh, has been passing uh, regulations that to try and limit uh, the, the production and transportation of oil and gas. Also, we were just talking, I was just talking about the, like the methane fee, like the taxes. Uh, the, another thing that HR1 does is it rolls back some of the increased fees that, um, uh, that the Inflation Reduction Act was going to put on um, oil and gas production on federal lands. 
Um, so again, the administration has been working really has been working overtime to limit production, and and they they've even said that like the right, yeah. uh, the just uh, a week or two ago, whatever, when the that big project in Alaska was approved, um, the Deb Hallen, the Secretary of Interior, said. I really didn't want to approve this. I think it's terrible and I wouldn't have approved it, but the lawyers think that we couldn't get around it. Like she basically right. said, we did everything possible to not approve it. And we just, this is this one we just couldn't get to. So again, the 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 fantasy, but it, I think it's really telling that even the NRDC is out here trying to peddle that talking point that somehow production is growing and therefore the Biden administration isn't, isn't actually anti- oil and gas. And I think it's indicative of how how politically toxic their position really is. Uh, the, the NRDC knows that it's bad. People people know that gas prices are higher. People know that their electricity prices are rising. And um, the Biden administration knows this. This is, you know, even as they've done all this anti-affordable uh, anti, uh, energy uh, rulemakings, Biden continues to go out every at least once a month complaining about how ga how high gas prices is and trying to blame oil companies for it when it's his own administration. So they I mean they know it's they know it's a PR loser and I even I I made that point once or twice during during the segment on C-SPAN that um you know you can when you poll people you can you can get large majorities of people to say um do you care about climate change oh, yeah sure i care about climate change should the should the government do something about climate change yeah people say yeah the government should do something about climate change but if you ask them what are you willing to give up or uh, how much more on gas are you willing to spend how much more are you willing to spend on your electricity bill what appliances are you willing to give up like are you willing to give up your gas stove uh for climate change and people the, the people will be like oh i'll spend ten dollars a month more on gas uh but i don't want to give up my gas stove and i don't want my electricity bill to go up so that's the real answer is that people I, I as i've said said a couple times on monday um people aren't willing to uh materially reduce their standard of living uh in the name of climate change they just aren't um and we live in a democratic society and so the voters don't want that so politicians aren't going to do it that's just why you know we mentioned the inflation reduction act which um the a lot of environmentalists tout this is the greatest climate change legislation ever passed now but uh it was much more ambitious and had a lot more regulatory uh actions a lot more restrictions on what you couldn't couldn't do where you could um but all that stuff was dropped and what ended up passing was just a bunch of tax credits, basically spraying money out to every, spending a bunch of money, which yeah, voters love that you're spending a bunch of money that you you know borrow from future taxpayers. They have no problem with that. They're just not willing to accept any material constraint today on their standard of living. So I mean, that's the trade-off, and that's why. Uh, actually, that was another thing from the C-SPAN segment. The the anchor asked me if I think that you know net zero by 2050 is is uh, is going to happen. I was like, no, there's no way. Because again, that would require voters to accept some constraints on on the things that we've come to expect as, uh, you know, the comfortable life that we've come to expect. People just, you know, they're not willing to give that stuff up. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has said that the uh, bill is kind of a non-starter. But again, talking with uh, House staffers yesterday, uh, they expressed a lot of optimism that, you know, this bill wasn't dead on arrival necessarily. Um, so my last question is just what's sort of the path forward here? Is there anywhere this is going to go or is it just going to be a, a messaging ex exercise or right. uh, where do we go from here? 
in fairness to the the house staffers they've got they've got to hype it but yeah I mean, I think realistically, you know, the Democrat, there might be, you know, a couple Democrats in, in the Senate that might be interested in voting for this, but there's certainly not, there's certainly not 10, 10 Democrats that are ready to vote for this. So, you know, it, it may get some consideration in the Senate possibly, but uh, I, it's not going to pass, certainly not as is. And the Biden administration's certainly not going to approve it because it's trying to stop a bunch of the things that they want to do. So, so even if it somehow got through the Senate, Biden would veto it. Um, but I do think that it, it is a, certainly a useful exercise um, um, for several reasons that I can see. You know, one, uh, it's important to discuss and hash out uh, these sorts of legislative proposals in advance um, so that, you know, eventually there's going to be a Republican president. Eventually there's going to be another Republican control of Congress and there will be an opportunity to actually pass something. And so these sorts of provisions, it's good to discuss them in advance, uh, work out what makes sense, what doesn't. Um, have people argue about things, what they prefer, um, so that when the time comes to actually pass something, you don't have to spend, you know, two, four years arguing over things to, to decide what you want to pass. You already have, you already have a list of things that, you know, we've already discussed this, we've already decided we agree on it. Like, why don't we, why don't we work from this list? So I think that's that's an important, very valuable um, part of this exercise. Um, Secondly, it is, I mean, part of it is a messaging exercise. As, as we have already mentioned, you know, the Biden administration has been very anti-affordable energy. That's all, all their proposals have been about raising energy costs. So this is a useful uh, messaging exercise to push back against the Biden administration, say you have been doing things that have been raising energy costs. And you know what, here's a list of things that you've been doing that you know, we could repeal a bunch of these taxes and fees. We could make it easier to build things here in the United States. That would lower costs. Like, why don't you want to do that? Um, so it is. It's the, pointing out the hypocrisy of what the administration is doing, and then, and also, frankly, the administration keeps saying, "Oh well, you don't have a plan to lower gas prices. Why are you criticizing us for high gas prices? You don't have a plan to lower high gas prices." Well, this is their plan, and you know. It's direct impact on gas prices, you know, some of it's arguable, but I think as an overall, it's very, very, very reasonable to say that it would lower gas, it could, would help lower gas prices. That's very, completely accurate to say. Um, and then uh, finally, the the third, a third uh, very useful uh, reason for this, honestly, is that uh, there are elements of this legislation that I think will end up being kind of the Republican ante in uh, bipartisan discussions. Um, there is a broad bipartisan agreement. We, we already kind of mentioned this about permitting reform, uh, that there are problems with building things and they're both both sides of the aisle uh, want to do something about it. At least they say they want to do something about it. Um, so the permitting provisions in this legislation will probably uh, be, uh, not probably, will certainly be in the mix for those discussions. Um, there's also um, a broad bipartisan agreement about uh, the critical minerals and critical critical minerals and mining that we were, that I was talking about earlier. Um, so that's another place where the provisions in this legislation will certainly be part of the discussion about whether it's promoting domestic mining or promoting domestic processing of some of these minerals. So that's the that's another useful exercise having just having these discussions, passing them, and then having that already having some um, ideas on the shelf. Uh, that makes it honestly. That makes the 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 Republican hand stronger in any bipartisan negotiations. You can already say, "Look, we already have these things that have passed. So why don't why don't we work from them?" So again, that that means. So to me, it's it's not. This isn't just um, you know a messaging exercise going rah rah. You know, 
uh, it really, I do think it is is a very useful both both in, for short term discussions and long term discussions. It's a valuable it's a valuable uh, argument to have. It's a valuable thing to be voting on. My guest today has been IER's director of policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, thank you again for your time today. Yep. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>